Hey everyone, my name is Yaro, and you're listening to the Dating Rules podcast. Really happy to have you and to share this episode with you at this time. It's been so joyful and really spring-like, so it felt like this week is the week <laughs> to share this conversation. I spoke to Anjali Shireen, who is such a beautiful writer and therapist, and who wrote a book called Joyous Resilience that I cannot recommend highly enough. And yeah, we talked about so many different things, but really I think a threat in the conversation was thinking about how we can move towards being more grounded and stable and resilient in our lives in a way that's really fun and also intersectional um, and community-minded as well as looking at self-care. So I hope that you're getting as much as out of the conversation as I did and that it's fun to listen. And I hope that you're enjoying spring in your own way if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. A few updates from me. I am well. I am making steps in my recovery. I was back in hospital for my broken leg today and I've been cleared to weight bear now, which is really exciting. It's a bit painful, but it's just the next step on that journey towards walking properly again. And it feels interesting that my body is recovering kind of at the same time as we're moving from winter to spring. I see so many similarities when I look at myself and I look at my garden and that's that's so beautiful to witness so I'm really grateful that I'm getting better and unrelated to that I'm offering a free workshop on April 13th in my other business Yaro Digital which you might want to check out and yeah it's free it's going to be an hour long I'm sharing some tips and tricks for your web design project you get to ask questions I will share my thoughts on different software options and kind of the ways in which I map a new project out that might be helpful for you. I will link to that in the show notes. And then over in the Embodied Ritual community, we are having four more creative space sessions coming up on the Saturdays. And they are a really nice way to meet other people and do some arty creative work together. Um, in the beginning of May, we'll have a special Beltane session so yeah, if you want to join that, you can become a patron at any level and I will link to that in the show notes as well. And then for now, I will let you just listen to the episode. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for another conversation. I'm really excited about this guest. As you know, I really love talking about joy and embodiment and just the space that we can have it inhabit in the world. And um, yeah, I feel there will be so much richness and beauty here. I'm speaking to Anjali Shireen, who's also written a book, I believe probably last year, but we'll hear more about that in a moment. And so Anjali, thank you so much for making time and being with us and sharing a little bit more about your work. I'm excited to speak to you. Thank you, Yaro. Yeah, I'm really excited for the conversation too. Okay, so let's begin by hearing where you are in the world and what nature is like around you. Hmm, I love that question. Um, so I am in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, um, which I know it's important to say, which is also the land of the um, Ohlone people, the Native American tribe of this area. Um, and gosh, I mean, nature is the saving grace here, especially in a year of the pandemic, because uh, um, it's really beautiful. Um, we get a lot of sunlight and 
um, you know, there's a coastline, there are hills behind me, um, just lots and lots of trees around, which again, I love trees and it's definitely a saving grace. Um, and generally the chance to be outside, um, which because of the pandemic has become even more um, precious. Um, we did have a lot of wildfires last year, so we are impacted by climate change, like, you know, many places around the world. Um, so that is there and something that this area has to deal with. Um, but yeah, just very, very beautiful wild nature. And then the last thing I'll say is that originally I am from Pakistan and that is where my family lives. And so I feel like I'm on this land, but I'm also always connected to and kind of, you know, straddling that land as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And for those who haven't had the chance to get to know your work yet, how would you describe what you do? And like, how did you get to do this work? Yes. So um, uh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I'm a somatic therapist and a hypnotherapist. Um, and I also do theta healing and various kinds of energy healing work. Um, and my areas of focus are... Um, somatic therapy, trauma, joy, and resilience. And I primarily work with a very diverse array of clientele. So, um, you know, uh, black people of color, um, LGBTQ populations, um, South Asian, uh, Middle Eastern and immigrant populations. Um, And I do um, individual work, so one-on-one. And I also love to do group work and I do um, healing circles live and online that are focused on joy and resilience. Um, and those healing circles draw on the book that you had mentioned. The book actually just came out um, like two weeks ago um, and it's called Joyous Resilience. And it's a unique book in the sense that it talks about a path to your own individual healing, but it ties our individual healing to um, society, culture, um, the impact of race, gender, class, and systems of oppression on our lives and how when we heal around our joy and resilience, it's not just an individual journey. Um, it's also a journey to kind of heal outwards collectively because those systems have such a big impact on us. And how I got here, um, I mean, it's a, it's been about, I would say, 21 years now of my own individual personal transformational journey. And then uh, about 16, 17 years doing this work. And, you know, I got here, I always say, like, like most people, I was... Um, really needing therapy. I was young and, um, you know, having a hard time in relationships and um, really not knowing a lot about my own emotional regulation and like how to show up in um, relationships well. And I think also, you know, feeling feeling down, I had uh, moved to America from Pakistan a couple of years prior. And so I think some of that grief and separation was also hitting me. So I got into this work um, really, I think in the best way possible, which is to do my own healing work. And then as I began to do my own healing work, realizing um, the, the, the really the, the kind of joy that came back to me, the life force that came back to me, and just having like coping tools, you know, to have good relationships, to have healthy communication, to be able to manage my emotions, um, to actually go forward towards my dreams instead of procrastinating. Like I felt so much liberation in that Um and also liberation in doing group healing work, uh, myself uh, being in a, in a group that was doing healing work and realizing um, the power of being authentic and vulnerable with other human beings and how exceptionally beautiful, I have to say, like just beautiful and 
magical um, and uh, kind of the, the kind of the, one of the ultimate healing forces to like do our healing work together and not just alone. And when I saw the beauty of group healing work and my own individual work, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. And so that's where the journey began, um, you know, and then of course getting all the trainings. And I think what I will say though is like, the best training is doing the work on yourself. And that is something that has stayed true throughout. Um, that like whatever I teach or whatever I do with clients, um, all of that has been lived. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, the, the like privilege of that as well, to have been able to access all that healing. Yeah, I was nodding along, which you couldn't, <laughs> but I resonate so much with all of what you said from the personal to the collective and how important it is that we do our own work, but also how that's mirrored in our communities. And um, I'm just really excited for the world to receive this book that's weaving together so many beautiful perspectives and experiences and modalities. So yeah, thank you, thank you for writing that. Um, what was it like to write it? Because it feels like, you know, especially hearing you talk now, the time is just so perfectly right for this book. And it's such a key um you know, moment for us to talk about these things. So I wonder, when did you first have the idea and what has the process been like to write the book? Oh, I love that. I'm still new in the podcast, so nobody has asked me that one yet. Um, yeah. Um, well, a few things. I mean, I'm trying to think of what, what would be important for the listeners to know. I think I'll start with like, because the book was about joyous resilience and because that is a major focus um, you know, of the work that I do, it has always been important to me to make sure that if I take on a project that, or really anything, that I'm taking it on through the lens of like, what joy will it bring for me or what joy would it bring to another? And also how do I do this project in a way that takes care of, of my kind of health or my family's health? Um, and my resilience, um, you know, and then forwards the resilience of others. So I preface that because obviously, you know, writing a book, especially like, you know, for most of us, none of us are doing just one thing at a time, right? So most of us have something like we have our relational obligations. We usually have a, a, a primary work probably that we're a part of, or we're taking care of our bodies, or we're taking care of our, care of our children, um, our family members. So adding on a book is generally a big deal like it's a big commitment of time and energy so I was really grateful to have this lens to begin it with like to ask myself you know when would it be joyous when would it make sense um how to do it and face it in a way that was actually not taxing for me all along um and then I was also really lucky in being able to when the book was picked up by um a publisher um North North, North Atlantic Books in my case um, to be able to actually negotiate a contract that asked for um, a longer length of time than was originally um, uh, recommended because I knew that I needed those extra months um, to be able to do it at a gentle pace. And then, you know, throughout, um, I made sure when I was writing that the writing happened in small chunks, you know, Yara, and that, that may not work for everybody. I know some people like to kind of just go into it and have, you know, all day or do it in like a 10 week spurt. But, but the most important thing for me was to ask myself and my body, like what would feel and bring ease and what would let me actually enjoy 
this process because it was a dream. You know, it was a dream for several years to write a book. Um, and when the time came to do it, I didn't want to miss the enjoyment of it's happening now. And I'm actually even doing this learning how to do this craft, which is very new to me, and that I deserve and need to have the space to, to do that. So I made sure when I checked inside to do this in spurts, I think I was writing, uh, you know, like I was writing generally over the weekends because I was working um, throughout the week. But even for that, I tried to figure out what time of day worked for me, which ended up being actually mornings. Um, and then I would make sure to take a break afterwards and I would actually make sure to get out and have fun, um, you know, to, to be with friends, to kind of do the things that really fed me, um, cooking, gardening, getting outside, like to really live for a little while and then come back again fresh. Um, and then it really helped to actually let it go, at least for me and my process throughout the week to be with clients, to do my general life and then come back. So, um, yeah, I think the last thing I'll say is that I tried to make it a part of my life. Um, I've been really blessed and I love to travel. And so, you know, some of that book got written and I learned how to write it on trains and planes. And um, it was really fun to visit bookstores around the world, some of them which had like little writing spaces and write some of the book there or um, to keep family vacations or to keep time with family and then simply actually include the family in that and ask them to support me by uh, you know, just like generously allowing me to have that time a few hours, even when I was visiting them to write the book, but then to be able to participate and be with family. So it was very important to have it be a part of my life and not something that like separated me from my life or the rituals that kept me resilient or the pace of life in general that kept me thriving. Um, it meant that the book got written in total with book proposal over about two and a half years, which really is not that long. Um, and it just meant that overall, I left the book uh, still excited and um, still well, and able to uh, you know keep the relationships and the work that was mattered to me and my body's health while doing it. That makes sense, and I can really feel how that's infused the book. So that's so nice to hear. Um, one one concept that you're sharing about is the cycle of suffering and the cycle of resilience. Mm-hmm. I would love to share that with the audience as well. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so that's uh, the like crux of the book. And so it the crux of the book is about these two models. And so the first one is the cycle of suffering. And and this yarrow was actually the one of the first tools that I got when I first began my own individual therapy. And it changed my world and the way that I was looking at my own life and the problems that I was going through, but also the way that I was kind of just like looking around me and realizing what is possibly the root of suffering um, within different um, relationships or for many people. So I'll start there. So the cycle of suffering, um, it comes from a concept called the victim triangle. It was uh, created by a therapist called Stan Carpman. And so the cycle of suffering is kind of my... Um, evolution of that. And if you can imagine a circle in your mind, and it's kind of spiraling, and it's spiraling downwards. And on this circle, uh, to imagine that there's these three um, roles, basically, that are going round and round. And so the three roles are the vulnerable self, the critic, and the neglectful self. And so 
all of us have these roles inside of us. Um, all of us have these parts and they interact with each other within us. Um, and the way that I explain it is, so the vulnerable self is if right now, whoever is listening, if you think about some area in your life where you might be feeling um, sad or scared or um, stuck, those feelings that are coming up of sadness or scared or stuck or angry even, that's our vulnerable self. So that's our feelings and our emotions. And usually there's some needs buried in there as well. And if it helps, we can even think about it as, as our younger self because it usually is kind of vulnerable. You know, um, it doesn't quite know what to do um, and it's having all of these big feelings. So that vulnerable self, when we learn possibly from our parents, from society, from our caretakers, uh, to respond to that vulnerability, those feelings, with either criticism, what's wrong with you, you shouldn't feel this way, buck up, um, you know, uh, what will people think of you, um, you know, if you're procrastinating, like you won't be able to do this, who do you even think you are, um, you don't know anything, I think you get the idea. When we respond with that criticism, this vulnerable self begins to deteriorate further, right? We end up feeling even worse about ourselves. We end up procrastinating longer. We get scared. We shrink. Um, and then generally what can happen is we have our neglector. So in the face of that, it's like, I don't know what to do with these feelings. They're just getting worse. Then if we respond with a neglector, a neglector is the part of us that goes, I don't know what to do with these feelings except to distract you away from them. So here, you know, watch another show, um, you know, eat this, uh, even if it isn't healthy for you, even if you aren't hungry, just kind of stuff your feelings. Um, or, uh, you know, it's why should we even focus on you? Like other people have so many needs. Other people have it worse. Let's go focus on them, but not from a real place of care, but actually from a place of avoiding one's own feelings. And so, when that happens, now I'm having this feeling, I'm vulnerable, and I'm either being criticized for it and attacked for it, or I'm being neglected. I'm not being nurtured. I'm not being tended. I am just being um, made to avoid or focus on other people. And so again, what happens is those feelings start to either get buried or exacerbated. And so that is a cycle of suffering because now maybe I'll kind of you know, collapse for a while until the next time that that same issue is there, which I've been procrastinating on. But this time I feel a lot worse about myself and I feel a lot more stuck. And then again, I probably criticize. And then again, I neglect myself. And then maybe I criticize myself for how I'm neglecting myself, so on and so forth. So we keep spinning in this cycle. And then what I discovered in the years of my own therapy and now, you know, for the past 15 years, 16 years working with clients is that the way out, and really the way out is also the foundation of what builds resilience inside of us is, and this is what I call the um, circle of resilience. So the way out is we shift from these three roles that I just described, and imagine a circle now on the other side, it's a circle of resilience. And on this side, you still have your vulnerable self, and they're going to become resilient in just a moment. But the way that they become resilient is, Instead of a critic, you have a protector. And instead of a neglector, you have a nurturer. And so now when I'm feeling anxious and sad and grieving and stuck, imagine now if I've cultivated a voice of a nurturer and the nurturer goes, oh, you're feeling this way. 
I have compassion for you. I want to listen to you. I am here for you. Um, let's actually make sure that you're also tended to, right? That like your body's tended to and you're fed and have you slept. And so these kind of basic self-care things, but also a profound emotional attunement and empathy towards the self and compassion. And so we know that as soon as, and maybe even the listeners, as you're hearing this voice, you might feel that you can take a slightly deeper breath or there's a relaxation, or there may be even be a bit of emotion that comes up, like a tearing up. And that's that vulnerable self responding to the voice of a nurturer. And that begins to soften some of those feelings. Second role that we have to cultivate instead of the critic is the protector. And the protector says, number one, um, you do not get to be spoken to in disrespectful ways, right? I am here to protect you from criticism. I am here to motivate you by encouragement. I am here to help you set boundaries. I am here to understand exactly what you're needing and then actually help you speak up on your behalf. So when we know how to nurture ourselves and when we know how to protect ourselves in these ways, as you can imagine, the parts of us that feel vulnerable, just like a child, when they're parented well in this way, um, begin to feel more resilient. Oh, if you understand me and you want to listen to me and you want to help me figure out what I need here when I'm scared, and then you're actually going to actively advocate for me, oh, well, I feel a bit better. Maybe I can try doing that big project that was scaring me. Maybe I can take it a couple of steps at a time. So that foundation inside is really the foundational work of therapy. And it is, to me at least in this circle, and as I've noticed with you know all the thousands of client hours, it is what lets people start to feel safe in their bodies again, um, feel loved, feel belonging, and um, <clears throat> actually begin to feel joy again in life because now they're internally parented in this way. Um, the last piece I'll say that's part of the circle of resilience is um, the soul self. And the soul self um, is really the part of ourselves that could go out in nature or access, accesses something larger than ourselves. It brings in things like awe and beauty, um, spirituality, um, the feeling of interconnectedness with all of life. And that self when we cultivate um, also brings a wider sense of perspective to this part that feels vulnerable. Um, and again, same thing, resilience, right? Because as so many of us know, nature and something larger, beauty and awe, gratitude, um, feeling that we're not alone in this bigger way does contribute to us being able to get through life, um, especially around things that are very hard, like major grief or um, larger systemic issues, where we don't have a solution necessarily per se in this moment, but that soul self perspective lets us go through life, uh, keeping hope alive and knowing that there's something beyond us that we can tap into. So these are the four parts that we cultivate. And that's what I talk about in the book. And that's the model of work that I do in my um, Joyous Resilience groups, where we cultivate these parts. And we walk out of that cycle of suffering within ourselves and with other people. And we walk into this circle of resilience. Oh my gosh, my whole being is saying yes to this. <laughs> you have such a wonderful way of, <clears throat> sorry, of describing these subjects and it really goes in. So that's great. I felt so seen when you were saying 
um oh you know there's this inner voice also that says let's just watch another show and I was like mm, yeah I'm clearly to see it. we all have that yeah <laughs> yes um something you also mentioned in your work is that a lot of self-help concepts kind of leverage this idea of um well a very western mental health mindset and I agree with you that that can be really limiting and that it also it just isn't for everyone. So I would love to hear if you can maybe speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I will say one thing, Yaro, you know, because we were laughing about the shows and I love my shows, by the way. I'm like completely addicted to um, um, period dramas and, you know, I love my, my books and my shows. And just I want to name like for anyone who's listening, like, there is nothing wrong with um, our favorite foods and our favorite shows and our books and to actually make a conscious decision to go, oh, this is how I want to take a break right now. The difference in terms of the resilience work is if if that's all that you're doing and it's not helping that vulnerable self actually uh, tend to the feelings that are coming up, like in the long run, we need to have both, like ways that we can just kind of relax and and go away and imagine and fantasy but just to make sure that it's not turning into the only response that we have towards the part that's feeling vulnerable because then 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 we do get stuck in those feelings does that make sense yes absolutely i agree and all the smaller parts of myself agree as well <laughs> okay <laughs> mine too good um yeah so western health mindset um that's a good question so there's a lot to that, but maybe maybe a couple of things I would say that can get problematic there. Like when we say Western mental health mindset, one thing that sometimes we can be talking about is that generally, like Western psychology originally was focused on just the individual, right? So if I'm coming in and I'm having a hard time being resilient um, in this particular way, like I'm feeling depressed um, because I'm at school and I don't feel like I'm doing my 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 best work on my dissertation or I'm struggling at work and I'm not quite sure why, um, you know, I'm not um, getting ahead or having a tough time in my relationships. The focus would have been just on you, the individual, like what's happening for you. And at the maximum, it would have been what happened in your family of origin and maybe whatever happened there is the reason why you're impacted in this way. And so what that missed, and I think which is troubling and it's really important to correct is that individual is not separate from the community and the systems that surround us. And so if I as an individual might be struggling, let's say academically or in my school, or I might be um, depressed in my relationships or having a hard time, yes, that may be because of things that have happened in my family of origin, but those things that happen in my family of origin are probably tied to the cultural and social history that my family um, is a part of, the cultural and social history of the country and how it treated um, the the um, the culture or race that my family belongs to, um, the institutions, right? Like how did the educational system and the workforce and the healthcare system and the economic system affect um, my community, my culture, my family? And then all of that probably produced stressors either stressors or privileges um, that raised my family up and so helped my family enhance me become more resilient or really stressed the family system and the community system. And so, um, you know, came down to me. And I think especially for clients of color, um, black clients here in America, you know, like systemic racism um, or any country, 
with systemic racism, um, LGBTQ clients, um, you know, any client who is facing any form of oppression based on these intersecting identities, race, gender, class, um, uh, um, um, ableism, and how that's affecting people, it is so important for a healer, for a therapist, for the systems, for the systems of power, our political systems, uh, our healthcare systems, educational systems, to be naming that as if you are feeling this way, we need to look beyond you. And we definitely need to come out of any model that says there's something deficient or wrong in you, um, if you are under duress or having a hard time. And to actually speak to what are the larger systems that have produced this stress? And honestly, how resilient you must be to actually be here and doing what you're doing and surviving the way you're surviving. And that, yes, there may be things that you can do individually, but also there are collective things that need to change to really have people rise. And all those collective changes look like the systems that I've named, right? A healthcare system that supports people instead of bankrupting them. Um, an economic system that supports people to have a living wage instead of forcing people to work multiple jobs and still not be able to thrive. Um, so it's really important to begin to name these things as real, the oppression that exists, the impact that it has on individual mental health, how individual mental health is tied to community mental health. Um, you know, and then finally, I think speaking to, because right now, we live at a time where, I mean, in the past year, I imagine, you know, many, many countries around the world, when people are coming and talking about what is stressing them, it is not an individual issue. You know, it is, there's a pandemic going on and how is the country that they're in dealing with that? And how is the country dealing with providing um, vaccines or care to people um, who uh, cannot afford actually to stay at home or cannot afford the vaccine in the first place. Um, climate change is affecting people. Um, the rise of fascism and white supremacy is affecting people. So I say this because again, Western mental health mindset would not have even necessarily spoken to these larger issues um, or begun to work with clients to go, these things are affecting you. They are external. How do we support you? And then whoever has the bandwidth including the healers and the institutions serving people, how do we begin to become advocates for change out in the world? Leveraging our political power, our power to vote, where we're spending our money, and that that's actually a part of healing as well, that we are working simultaneously, best of our ability to change systems that affect the people we serve or ourselves, and we are all affected by this, um, as much as we're doing individual healing work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I would love to ground this a little bit more and what each of us can do day to day right mm -hmm. now and navigating these really deeply uncertain times and have already have this whole year of social distancing <laughs> and, you know, all these different things in place. So, yeah, as people listen to this, what would you like them to know and think about as they're moving towards resilience mm -hmm. and joy? Thank you. Yeah, I like that because you it reminds me of something I didn't say yet, you know. So I'm going to tie it back to Western health mindset and also answer your question. So one thing that I'd say, and I know for me, and this past year I was learning, I was um I'm I'm running my um I'm joyous healing circle all year, and we had moved from being live to online. And it was an odd year, you know, to be talking about joy. Um resilience made a little bit more sense. And yet we found that um 
focusing on joy intentionally, I think it's like really saved us. And what it made us realize is, you know, like again, Western mental health mindset is also a mindset from the um, um, colonizer perspective, you know, which is the idea of like, the person who has the degree and the education knows better and that the way that we heal is by sitting one-on-one and simply talking to each other. And um, illness is, well, A, that actually there is an illness um, instead of just, you know, a very natural response to stress. And that B, um, it, we have to learn in some school or educa- you know, education institution how to actually clear that. And one of the ways to come out of that and to access your resilience, and I would again encourage anyone who's listening to this, is to actually look for ways that are ancient, ways that are in our body, ways that have always been there, um, ways that can be about talking. Certainly, we need places where we can vent and share um, the stressors that are happening. That is really important. And those safe spaces might be in our family, they might be with our friends, they might be in our spiritual community, um, they might be in our healing groups. Um, but we also need in a long turn to other ways, ways like dance, music, art, being outside in nature, um, crying and laughing with loved ones, um, making something with our hands, feeding ourselves, um, you know, humming, rocking, praying. These ways are ancient and innate, and many of us have gotten separated from them you know, by really Western culture and also the culture of like capitalism that says you're going to get that return to wellness if you buy something and if you take a pill. And for sure, there is usefulness in Western psychology, in even psychopharmacology for people. It's not that. But I think it's really listening for and trying to have those questions and conversations in our community about what feeds us. And especially, you know, what feeds us. I mean, now that so many of us are isolated in our homes, um, what feeds us? And we have to get creative in that. And I think people have gotten creative and gone back to our hands and, um, you know, using our hands, using our bodies, moving our bodies, and and really listening to the simple things, because it's been reduced down to the simplest things. Like, can I look outside and just watch um, the bird life go by? Or um, you know, can I make music in my apartment building and and just spread that music out through the window? Um, do I listen to music again? Um, you know, do I do I create something? So some of it is that, like really looking for sensory ways that we can give ourselves that joy. Some of it, as I talked about, which is that kind voice inside. Most of us are tapped out. It is very hard to have bandwidth for these things I'm talking about. Generally, when we begin them the bandwidth increases. But it is also incredibly important to be so kind and compassionate with ourselves if we don't feel the energy to be creative right now. And if we don't feel the energy to be learning something new or, um, you know, even like to to muster up the energy to like connect in these different ways. Uh, The kindness piece is essential for the resilience. Um, Last part is if you do happen to have the bandwidth, say the pandemic has not hit you so hard economically, or say you are sitting at home and wondering, you know, how do I contribute? I want to connect. Um, That is where, and I talk about this in my book, there are so many ways that people have begun to connect either locally. So one example is um, mutual aid societies, where where our communities, the people in our communities are hit really hard, um, elderly people, um, frontline workers, 
um, people who've lost their jobs. And so community members, uh, you know, coming together through mutual aid societies, which many communities have formed and you can find them online, where neighbors are saying, here's somebody who needs help and who is healthy and has the funds who can go and maybe pick up groceries for this person or take them to the doctors or just simply do a call to lift up their spirits. So that's an example of like a local way that if we're feeling overwhelmed and I want to make change, we could participate. Obviously, in broader ways, um, here in America, you know, um, the um, um, Black Lives Matter movement in the past year and the rise, the very important rise in understanding that systemic racism is very much here and alive and that um, work has to be done. That means that if you have the bandwidth and the time, um, we begin to maybe educate ourselves around systemic racism. Um, maybe we begin to participate in groups and do healing work. There's lots of great work happening online. Um, around that issue. Maybe we begin to um, see through that how we can ally with movements like that, um, to begin to put our funds there, to begin to put our voices and our resources there to make larger systemic change. That is something I would really encourage people, like when we're overwhelmed by large issues, climate change, systemic racism, ableism, to join with movements and organizations that are doing work to shift things on policy level, to shift things um, in the larger systems at play, because that keeps hope alive. It also, in the long run, is really what makes change. Um, and it keeps tying the thing that's personally impacting us to the health and resilience of the collective. So those are some of the ways that we could begin to shift. Yes, I was again nodding along, and I think that's such a beautiful way of really making it tangible for people. There's so been there's been just so much here um, that people can do and engage with that I'm really excited about. So thank you. Thank you. One last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go is what exquisite self-care means to you right now? Hmm. I think, yeah, it's funny, you know, I mean, the word, I, I, I know I'm using it quite a bit here. I guess it must be the word of the day. It's kindness. Yeah, like I know that it could look like very tangible things like, you know, I, I feed myself or I, um, I did this nice thing for myself. But I think like what Joyous Resilience is trying to say, like why the foundation is really this inner nurture, this compassion is that everyday things happen that are not in our control. You know, everyday things happen that might mean that I can't show up. I can't necessarily make myself that breakfast and the kids are, you know, um, needing something. And so I won't maybe have the time to do my long meditation practice or even any meditation practice. Um, but the meditation practice that I always have at hand is my breath and my kindness to myself. And when we have that inner voice that is kind, that is going, you're doing a good job and I'm right here with you and I want to tend to you. Um, it is that voice that then can make choices and decisions that helps us feel exquisitely cared for but it is also that voice that lets us feel exquisitely cared for in the moment because I am loved. And that voice is going with me everywhere. And that voice basically shifts the quality of my life to a huge degree. So to me, exquisite self-care, we can practice it, is exquisite self-kindness um, and love. And then that ripples out because I cannot speak to myself in that way without then transferring it over to how I speak to another. 
And I cannot love myself so deeply and know I deserve to be cared without then looking out at my community and realizing every single person deserves that and that I want to be a part of that. So I think in the end, if we put our attention there and most of us are taught that is a luxury or that's spoiling ourselves or, you know, who has time for that? It's not. It is the foundation, I think, of a healthy society in the end is that we're deeply, deeply kind. Um, with ourselves and then out to others. Yes, I fully agree with that. Thank you. Um, and yeah, before we go, you mentioned a few things that you're doing and of course there's your book as well. Um, what what are you currently offering and where can people find you and learn more? Yes, um, I love having people um, connect in with me. So the best place to reach me is my website, uh, www.angelishireenmft.com. When you come to the website, um, you will find that there are nine free guided meditations on all of these roles that I just shared and cultivating joyous resilience. So that's a wonderful way to just quickly tap in to the work I'm offering and it's free. Um, and also when you receive those meditations, um, you will then uh, receive invitations to um, online healing groups that will be beginning in April. These will also probably be complimentary, but there are places where we'll be practicing the things that I've talked about today and how to cultivate these inner voices and to be joyously resilient. Um, and then finally on the website and actually anywhere that books are available online, um, you will find the Joyous Resilience books and that will walk you through everything that I talked about today, um, as well as the meditations. And it's a great way to just begin doing the healing work, whether on your own or with a healer that you're working with. Um, yeah. And then I'm also on Instagram and all of that you can find when you come to my website. I love hearing from readers and yeah, I'd love to connect with all of you. Great. I'm excited for people to check that out. And I'll link to everything in the show notes as well. Thank Anjali, you. thank you so much for today. This has been really beautiful. It is evening for me. So I'm kind of winding my day down, but I still felt like I could take so much in. And I don't say that lightly because I think mm -hmm. that means a lot these days, right? To, to yeah. hear and be exposed to new or different ideas and really be able to hear them and feel them in our bodies is so beautiful. So you have just a great way of communicating these ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Yaro. Like I said at the beginning, I love the work you do and just the, the magic and the healing and the sweetness you bring. Thank you for having me. Thank you.